We'll be reading Zechariah chapters 5 and 6. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and it's width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after him, after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. 
And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord our God. Let us pray. Father, this is your word. We ask now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the first questions that I like to meet people or to ask people when I meet them, uh, if you've been here as a, as a new person, as a visitor, I've, I've probably asked you some type of question like this is, where are you from? Or where did you grow up? I think you can learn a lot about a person by asking this question, finding out where they're from, where they grew up. Usually the answer that I get is not something like this, which I could answer to this question. 313 Green Street in Argyle, Wisconsin, the house up on the hill with the pool. That's where I grew up. I wouldn't give that detailed of information because that's not what the person is really looking for, right? They don't want information about my address growing up or what the description is of the house that I lived in. They want to know where I'm from. The question is looking for something regarded, regarding the location, the city or the town or, or the area, the part of the state, the part of the country. Where we live or where we have lived inevitably shapes us. But as Christians, we know that question goes deeper than that. It's more than just the place, generally speaking, that we might be inquiring about. We want to know about the people, about the Christian community, about the people on mission together for a common goal. Now, when we think about this, is it possible for the city of Oshkosh to have a common goal? I would say no, right? I think it's too big. Now, the city council might have some vision statement about what they're trying to accomplish, and that's fine. But is the whole city really united towards a common goal? I would say no way. There's way too much diversity, right? There's way too many differing opinions among the people. Even in a small town, you drive through these small towns in Wisconsin and you come into town and there's the catchy sign, right, about who they are and what they're about. Even if it's only a town of three or four hundred people, do you think every single person in that town is all about the same goal and the same vision? You think they're all on the same page? No way. You probably have someone who drives by that sign and wants to like shoot paintballs at it or throw eggs at it every time because they're like, this is so stupid. That's not my, that's not my life vision, right? I'm sure many of you also ask this, where are you from question when you meet someone new. It's because you're curious. You want to know about them. Maybe you want to know them better as a person. Like, who are you really? Don't we all want to know that? And don't we all want to be known? So who are we? How do we answer people's questions like this to us? As Christians, how do we do that? We talk around here a lot about identity and calling. 
want us to think about this today in terms of the two words in the sermon title, dwelling and building. Where do we live and how do we identify ourselves in the place in which we live? And what are we working towards or what are we building towards? This is the particularly pressing issue that we've been seeing in Haggai and Zechariah over this past month. The people of God were busy building their own houses while the temple of God was in ruins. And we today, as the people of God, we need to be about God's business. Knowing who we are and living out that reality in the world around us as we seek to be a part of the work of the building of God's kingdom. That's what we need to be about. But it's not just outward. It's not just outward building. It's not just this external issue. It's not a how busy are you for God? How much are you doing for God issue? It's not about more church programs and and more numbers. It's also fundamentally an internal issue. The questions that we must all answer are, first, has my sin been dealt with? Has my sin been dealt with before a holy God? And then second, am I desiring to live a life of obedience to God? That's kind of what Donovan was talking about with the kids in the the children's message, that element of repentance. Are we desiring to, to live a life of obedience to God because of the forgiveness that we have experienced? Now, to use Paul's language from Romans 6, we are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. It's pictured in our text today by the language of dwelling places. Look at the language of house and temple. We've seen throughout Zechariah the encouragement that God would return to his people if they would return to him. To him. We see that in chapter 1. And that he would dwell in the midst of them and that he would be their God. That is this constant refrain throughout the scriptures. Saw that in chapter 2. Saw that God would establish his king and his priest in chapters 3 and 4 last week as we looked at Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel being figures that pointed us forward to Jesus, our Messiah. The first four chapters, which included the first five of these eight night visions, they very much have a directional theme of returning. It's, a, it's God coming to his people, coming back to his people in this rebuilding of the temple. This is very significant in terms of where God's people were historically. They are currently in the process of returning after being in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Remember, the temple was destroyed in 586 when the Babylonians came. And there's a whole host of issues associated with this. There is now no sacrificial system. Uh, Sin cannot be dealt with. There is no land for the people to dwell in. So all of the promises to Abraham and to the patriarchs are not being fulfilled. And then there is no king on the throne and there is no kingdom. So God's people really have no identity. They have no place. They have everything that they've known for all these years has just been ripped out from under them. They're under Babylonian and Persian rule now. But now in chapter five, the direction of the visions changes. Instead of the Lord returning, there's this emphasis on going out. We see in all these visions, 
it reverses and it's instead of coming in, it's focused on going out. It's seen very dramatically in visions six and seven in chapter five. So let's take a look at those now. This sixth vision in chapter five verses one through four is of a flying scroll. The scroll is about 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. It's about the size of a highway billboard, just a little bit smaller. Except it's not just sitting there stationary for people to see as they drive by. It's flying through the air. This is definitely intended to get Zechariah's attention. And as for us as readers, it should get our attention too, right? So what's the message on this scroll? It's a message about the curses of the covenant for breaking the Mosaic law. There are two specific laws here. They are the third commandment and the eighth commandment. The eighth commandment, which is listed first, is a commandment against stealing. This is that in the horizontal table of the, the law, right? The things that we do as sins against other people. Third commandment then is against swearing falsely by God's name, against taking God's name in vain. This is the vertical commandment about our relationship with the Lord. That one is listed second. What we have here then basically is a summary of loving God and loving neighbor. Obviously, all 10 commandments could have been listed, but these commandments are, are chosen specifically to highlight the sins of God's people. There are people in Israel who are failing to do these things that God commands. They're doing what, what God tells them not to do. And we see the consequences of their sin in verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. I will send it out, the curse, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. What's the point here? What's being communicated here? It's that you can't run from God. Your sin will eventually catch up with you. And the very place where you are finding security, your earthly dwelling place, God is going to raise it to the ground. R-A-Z-E. He's going to raise it. It will be completely consumed and destroyed. Again, the question that we need to consider as we see this is, has your sin been dealt with? Either your sin will be consumed or it will consume you. That's kind of the justification element, right? Your sin will be consumed or it will consume you. I love what John Owen said, talking about sanctification. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you, right? That's kind of the, the ongoing picture of the Christian life. But what's being pointed to here, I think, is that either our sin will consume us right, eternally, or it will be consumed. The point here is that covenant breakers must be punished. And what's the good news for us today? It's that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he became a covenant breaker for us. Now you might hear that and say, wait a minute, Jesus was sinless. How was Jesus a covenant breaker? Isn't this what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when he says that he made 
him, for, that for our sake, the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Christ took our sin. He gets our sin. He becomes a covenant breaker and we get his righteousness. Jesus became a curse for us. That's what Paul also says in Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now this points us back to the day of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, when the high priest would kill the sacrificial lamb, and then he would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of that lamb to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat in order that God would symbolically for that next year until the next day of atonement that he would pass over the sins of the people. The fancy theological word here for this is propitiation. Is that the lamb, this lamb bore the wrath of God on behalf of the people, on behalf of another. So the people hearing this message from Zechariah's sixth vision, they would have known that either either they were going to bear the curse for their own sin or something else, a sacrificial lamb, was going to bear it for them. Now, the seventh vision may have been intended to remind the original audience and us today as the readers of the second half of the priest's actions on the Day of Atonement. There was another goat, and it's called the scapegoat. It's where we get our popular term today, somebody who takes the blame for somebody else. It's the fall guy. After the high priest killed the first lamb or the goat, and he laid his, then he laid his hands on the head of the second goat and symbolically placed the sins of the people on that goat and then sent that goat out into the wilderness. There's a picture of God removing his people's sins from his presence. Their sin and their guilt is, is taken away and it gets lost in the wilderness, never to be seen again. The fancy theolo theological word for this is expiation. So propitiation is the lamb that is, is slaughtered, right? And the blood is spread on the mercy seat. It bears the wrath of God. Then this one is, is expiation. It's the removal of the presence and the guilt of sin. This, this goat is sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And that's a picture of what God does for us in Christ. Consider that as we look at this seventh vision in verses 5 through 11. In this vision, the angel tells Zechariah the meaning of the vision before he sees the whole vision. He's told in verse 5 to lift up his eyes and to see what this is that is going out. And he asks, what is it? And he is told that it is a basket and that it is the iniquity of the people in all the land. Then he sees this vision unfold. There's this basket with a heavy cover on it. There's a woman in the basket who is identified as wickedness. Well, what is going on here in this crazy vision? Some commentators think that this is not an actual woman, uh, not an actual human, but a statue of Asherah, the Canaanite fertility goddess. 
It's interesting that the word uh, in Hebrew, the word for wickedness and the word for Asherah, they're an anagram. So it's all the same letters. They can just be jumbled up. Uh, there's probably a connection here with wickedness and the word Asherah. This is definitely not saying that women are the epitome of wickedness, right? This isn't Zechariah trying to have some beef like with his wife or whatever. And this should be clear from the next scene where women are the heroines. Next, Zechariah sees two women flying like storks with the wind in their wings. They're carrying this basket away. Remember, there's, we have this imagery of things being taken away. It's all going out. This basket of wickedness is being carried out to the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is first mentioned early on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. This is the location of the tower, the city and the tower of Babel. So this place represents rebellion against the Lord. Uh, other references throughout the Old Testament to Shinar very clearly identify it with Babylon. So this house is built here in Shinar, and then this basket and this idol, probably, that are in this basket are placed in this house. Now, the combination here of visions six and seven are a great picture of the defeat and the eradication of sin and wickedness in the world. I already know the question that some of you might be wanting to ask here. It's the same question that I ask when I read this. Why doesn't it feel like this is the case, right? God gives us this picture of, of wickedness being taken away, of being placed in this house, kind of, again, similar to that picture of the goat being sent out into the wilderness. But why doesn't it appear that way? Why is our world not actually looking like this? We confess and we believe that Jesus died for our sins that we have forgiveness and new life in him, that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, that he is reigning right now as king. We rejoice and we glory in these great gospel truths. But then we turn the news on or we have a conversation with someone. We see that sin is rampant in our world. That wickedness and ungodliness are everywhere. That temptation to sin is around every corner. Is God really doing anything about the wickedness around us? Does he even care? One commentator, Anthony Pedersen, is particularly helpful here as he reminds us that this vision points us to the second coming of Jesus. To his return in that great day of the Lord, which the prophets are continually pointing us forward to, and to the final judgment when iniquity and wickedness and idolatry will be eradicated from the world. He also points to Revelation chapter 17, where Babylon is pictured as a prostitute who seduces people with her glamour, but in the end is really just a hideous beast. And he says this, and, and we need to hear this. A great threat for Christians today is the same as it was in Zechariah's day. The seductiveness of the wickedness and idols of, Babel, of the Babylon of our age. God's people must see through this deception and resist. 
the world out there today, symbolically, we would, we would call Babylon, right? It's the world that's opposed to God. We must recognize that. We must see through the deception of the world, and we must resist. This is a picture of warfare, something that is brought to our attention throughout the New Testament, that we are in a spiritual battle, and that we don't wage war with the weapons of this world, but by faith with spiritual weapons and spiritual armor. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 6. This imagery of, of battle and warfare is what Zechariah sees next in his final vision. This eighth vision here is parallel to the first vision that we saw in the middle of chapter one. There are multicolored horses, just like there are in the first vision. In the first vision, the horses are sent out to patrol the earth, and then they return while the nations that are opposed to God are at rest. Now, some differences here. We see that the horses in this vision are pulling chariots. They're ready for battle. They're ready to go out, and they do go out. They go out to the north, into Babylon. They go to the south, into Egypt, in order to, to subdue those nations that are hostile to God. Remember, this is a forward-looking picture of what God is going to do in the end to subdue all peoples to himself. The reminder here for God's people, when we ask that question, does God care? Is God really at work in our world when sin is rampant? The reminder here for God's people is that God is sovereign over the affairs of our world, that he is not going to let sin ultimately go unpunished. And that the rebuilding of the, the temple and the establishment of God's rule and reign is something that we are to strive for. We see all of this culminated in our final section in chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. This is the first of what is called a sign action. There are three of them in Zechariah, and we see it throughout other prophets. We're going to see the other two in a couple of weeks in chapter 11. But a sign action is where the prophet is called to actually called by God to physically act out something that has great spiritual significance for the people. So unlike a vision where the prophet is passive, where he just looks and sees something, here God tells him to actually act this out to dramatize what the Lord is trying to communicate to his people. So what do you see then in this first sign action in verses 9 through 15? Here God has Zechariah take silver and gold from this list of these returned exiles and make a crown and then place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. We saw in chapter 3. Remember in chapter 3, Joshua's filthy garments were removed and pure vestments were placed on him. Then Joshua and his friends were given this sort of cryptic message in chapter 3 that the Lord would bring his servant the branch. And that's kind of all we're told in chapter 3. We're not told there who the branch is or what he would do. But now we're given here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, a lengthier description of who this branch is and what he will do. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, Zechariah is not the first prophet through whom the Lord spoke of this branch. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, sandwiched in between an indictment against the shepherds of Israel who have not attended to the sheep and who have allowed the sheep to be scattered and and driven away on the one hand, and then a warning following these verses against the false prophets who speak lies to God's people and fill them with vain hopes, In between these two failures of leadership in Israel, we read these words of true hope, of one who will faithfully shepherd God's people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We see here in Jeremiah the identity and the calling of this one who is called the branch. He is the king. And he will execute justice and righteousness. In fact, he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Now here in Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, the Lord gives a list of these things that the branch shall do. He shall branch out from his place, indicating growth and expansion. He shall build the temple of the Lord, the very thing that they are attempting to do. He shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. What Zerubbabel who is the rightful heir to the throne, but who is called the governor in Jerusalem. These are the things that Zerubbabel is not doing. Zerubbabel has not borne the royal honor or sat and ruled on his throne. These things are a fitting description for a king, which should not surprise us. But then we get this interesting additional information in the second half of verse 13, which is surprising. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them. What is going on here? In the Old Testament, the office of priest and king were distinct. Priests did not sit on thrones, and kings were not authorized to offer sacrifices. Go read about the downfall of Saul. And think about the situation that the people of Israel find themselves in here in Zechariah's day. There is no king on the throne. There is no completed temple yet. And once the temple is completed a few years after this vision, there is no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies for the priests to go and enter in on the Day of Atonement to offer the most significant sacrifice for the people on behalf of their sins. So what is God trying to communicate to his people here with this vision of the, this priest being crowned and sitting on the throne. I don't think this is arguing for a reinstating of an earthly king to David's throne. If so, why wouldn't Zerubbabel be crowned? Why would the priest be crowned and not the king? 
Joshua and Zerubbabel were mentioned in chapters 3 and 4, which we saw last week. So why does Zerubbabel fade from the picture here? Why is he not even mentioned in this sign action? It's because this isn't ultimately about Joshua or Zerubbabel. Now, the temple would actually be completed in Zechariah's day. In fact, chapters 9 through 14, which we'll be getting to, occur chronologically after the temple is complete. So there is a bit of a gap between chapter 8 and chapter 9 chronologically. Zechariah is still prophesying and writing after the completion of the temple. So if the branch will build the temple and Zerubbabel and his companions actually finish the temple and Zerubbabel is not the branch, then what is this talking about? It shouldn't be surprising to us that the priest is the king and the king is the priest. In Hebrews chapter 7, we're told of Jesus' mysterious priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, who was both priest and king. Then the author describes the significance of Jesus' priestly and kingly ministry. This is Hebrews 7, 26 through 8, 2. He writes, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's kingly language there. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 8, verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this. In other words, listen up. This is what this whole thing, again, the Melchizedek story is kind of crazy, right? Maybe a little parallel to this vision that's going on uh, in, in Zechariah here. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We see that imagery of the priest and the king being one person, right? Do you see the significance of this? Jesus is the ruling and reigning king and priest. As the author of Hebrews says later in chapter 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins as the priest, he sat down at the right hand of God as the king. So the priest himself got up onto the altar and became the sacrifice. He died and was buried and he rose again and ascended to the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, where he now intercedes for us. Those of us who are described here in verse 15 of Zechariah chapter six, the ones who have come from far off to build the temple, those who are to diligently obey the voice of the Lord, our God, And we have to remember that our obedience doesn't gain us standing in the kingdom. 
our obedience doesn't give us better tools to build with. It's not like the Lord gives the cheapo Menards brand tools. Don't waste your money. Trust me. Uh, He doesn't give the cheapo like $20 saw to those who are like immature and struggling in their faith. And then, you know, the pastors, right? We get, we get the Bosches and the DeWalt's. We get the good stuff, right? It's not how it works. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, or if you're looking for tools, go buy some Bosch and, and DeWalt's. They're, they're good. Don't buy the cheapo stuff. But, that, but this, isn't, this isn't how it works, right? It's not like, oh, we go, we're, we're to build the kingdom and we'll just let the ones with the, the good tools do all the hard work, right? We're all building with the best tools. We're all sharing the best tools. We saw this in our New Testament reading in Ephesians chapter 4. Christ did call some, obviously, to unique offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But what is their job? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In other words, it's sharing the tools. Until, now don't miss this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In other words, as you're out there in Babylon, right, don't be deceived and taken in by Babylon. Part of the building up is the church, of the church is for the protection of God's people. And we all have a role in that. Rather, then he goes on, Paul goes on, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the, the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see this, church? This is the fulfillment of the sign action here in Zechariah chapter 6. We are the temple that the branch is building. We are branching out into the world where we are called to declare to the world the good news of Jesus, our great high priest, who died for our sins and who sovereignly rules and reigns over the world, even though it might not appear like it. The growing and the building body, his church, is to be the vehicle through which his glory, goodness, and truth are proclaimed to a lost and dying world. Let us not lose heart, dear church. And may we confidently declare, along with the words of the great hymn we are about to sing about the church's one foundation, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, She waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that speaks clearly to us, even through these visions and these sign actions that seem 
in so many ways so far from us historically culturally but god we thank you that all of these things were for a purpose to call your people back to yourself to point your people to jesus the messiah our great high priest and king just as zechariah's eyes were lifted up in these visions god may our eyes be lifted up May we see our Savior ruling and reigning from his throne. The priest and the king who sat down after the final sacrifice for sins was made. God, may we go out confidently into this world, knowing that the world is not out of control. The world is firmly in control, under the control of you, our sovereign God. We praise you and give you thanks for all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.